0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And there is, as always, a lot going on in the world this week. So, Derek, why don't we just get into it? There is a big election in Australia. How are our friends down under doing? What happened? Why is it important? Why should we care?
1: Well, unfortunately, friend of the show Scott Morrison uh, did not do well. Uh, his right wing. Slash far right coalition uh lost its uh, basically lost control of the Australian government uh, and the election was held on uh, Saturday. Is that something? Uh, Blinding. Yeah, is don't that know. a British thing yeah. though? Sorry. <laughs> I, I think that's a British thing. Uh, crikey, crikey, C- crikey. Scott Morrison is, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, something. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Scott Morrison is no longer Prime Minister of Australia. In fact, he has been replaced already in, in record uh, transition speed uh, by Anthony Albanese or Albanese. Albanese or Albanese, and the reason I'm giving all these pronunciations is because he's used all of them at one point or another over nice. his political career. I think he's That's going awesome. with Albanese uh, right now, so we'll go with that. Uh, he is the new prime minister, leader of the Labor Party. The Australian Labor Party is the new prime minister uh, of Australia. It says a lot about our great country, that the son of a single mum who was a disability pensioner who grew up in public housing down the road in Camperdown. can stand before you tonight as australia's prime minister the vote was um r- uh, kind of close in line with polling which indicated that they were they were you know pretty closely entwined there toward the toward the end of the campaign but the short uh, summary here is that the labor party has emerged i believe with 75 seats i'm not sure if that's the final count there may still be a seat or two that they haven't uh de- race or two that they haven't declared Uh, 75 seats is not enough for uh, a sole majority, but the Green Party, uh, which did fairly well uh, for itself, uh, now has three seats. It gained two seats, uh, so now has three seats uh, and will most likely uh, form some kind of a coalition uh, with Labor. What that will look like, I don't know. The reason we can, I mean, we'll talk about the uh, Joe Biden's big Asia trip, but the reason. Albanese Albanese uh, was uh, appointed or uh, kind of moved into the prime minister's uh, office post haste a was because it's clear he's the only person who's in a position to form a government. And B, uh, the Australian government had to get somebody to Japan for the uh, big quad summit that took place during Joe Biden's visit. Uh, and rather than send Morrison, who was the definition of a lame duck at this point, uh, they, uh, I guess, decided to rush the the uh, swearing in of a new prime minister and send Albanese instead. And so, Is this a big deal? I mean, from the
0: United States' perspective, you know, thinking about AUKUS and basically the pivot to Asia, is this going to affect something along those lines? Because it does seem like uh, the United States is going to be interested in increasing security ties with Australia, you know, in order to counter China. Does this affect that? Or is is there a bipartisan consensus on on what Australia thinks it should do vis-a-vis the U.S.?
1: I mean, I, I'm far from an expert on Australian politics, but my impression you. is that there, <laughs> uh, there's not much daylight on foreign policy between the two major parties, between... The Liberal National Coalition, or at least the Liberal Party uh, that Morrison was uh, a member of, and the Labour Party. Uh, I think they'll go nicely along with what the U.S. has planned for Australia, for the Pacific, for the whole Indo-Pacific, really, countering China. Uh, you know, building up alliances, trade, uh, well, economic agreements. There, they they did talk about a, a sort of economic agreement in Japan. It, it's not a trade agreement, though. We can get into that. Um, so I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of difference there. Where there could be some difference, and I say this only because. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody any worse than Morrison was, uh, is on the environment. Uh, Scott Morrison was basically a climate change denier, Uh, despite, you know, sort of insisting offhandedly that or grudgingly that uh, he accepted there was something going on. He was pretty much uh, in the denialist camp. Uh, He was very resistant to, for example, um, cutting back on Australian coal mining or coal exports, uh, despite the damage that coal does to the environment, which we're uh, all, I think, at this point pretty familiar with. Um, In fact, there's some reason to think that, that his... Uh, environmental stubbornness may have contributed to the outcome here. Uh, most Australians, I think, are uh, old enough to remember the 2019-2020 brush fires, uh, which were the worst ever. <laughs> I would ever. think most Australians are old uh, enough. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Uh, which were the worst in, in Australian history, uh, caused in in large part by drought and, and uh, climate change, did extensive damage to forests, to places that that can't be recovered. Uh, massive numbers of animals lost. The koala pushed to basically the brink of extinction. Um, you know, lots of lots of horrible things happened, and of course the smoke and uh, people trying to deal with their their homes being you know in jeopardy. And Morrison, you know took, I think, uh, a fair amount of blame because he's been so kind of affirmatively reactionary, if that's a thing, uh, when it comes to climate change. So I, I suspect that played a role in his uh, his struggles here. So Albanese, I don't know what he plans to do environmentally, but like i say he's he, it's hard for hard to imagine him being worse than Morrison, so that's probably a, an improvement so why don't we stay in in
0: the broad region and talk about uh President joseph Robinet Biden's trip to Asia? He went to japan he went to to South Korea to to boost alliances. so, how did that trip go uh it was the first presidential trip there. Is this a big deal, or is just the you know the normal president going and you know
1: shaking hands and whatnot so this was biden's first trip to asia which does make it a big deal sort of implicitly uh he spent the first part of his trip uh in south korea basically doing uh you know getting to know you stuff with uh Uh, The new South Korean government um, did some business deals, I guess. There's a, uh, you know, Hyundai agreed to open a a new factory or spend like, you know, $10 billion or something uh, in the United States. So he did some business deals. What was surprising to me uh, about the South Korea trip is that it wasn't interrupted by a nuclear test or ICBM test or something of the kind from North Korea. Uh, the North Koreans waited until after the entire trip, and I'll get to this in a minute, to to do their uh, uh, kind of, uh, get, hey, hi, President Biden, uh, weapons test. So we can, uh, we can talk about that. Biden then went to Japan, which uh, was where all the, I think, big meetings, big kind of regional meetings were set to happen. As I said, uh, the Quad had a a summit uh, on Tuesday that involved uh, Albanese, Biden, uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and, uh, of course, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio. Uh, That was sort of the capper of the trip. The day before, Biden met with Modi and uh, Kishida, and they talked about, you know, some economic issues. They announced the creation of uh, this new group that they're calling the Indo-Pacific economic framework for posterity. I don't know oh, if the for good. posterity part is is officially in the name or if that's just the, the sub headline. The countries are still working out a lot of the details, but we know the framework will target four pillars, digital trade, clean energy, anti-corruption, and here's a term you've definitely heard before, supply chain resiliency. I'm still not clear on what this is. It includes uh, Australia. Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam, in addition to the United States. Uh, I know what it is not is a free trade agreement. It is not that. It's not intended uh, to replace the defunct Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has been resurrected without the United States as the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, It's not a direct competitor for the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a Chinese-led free trade bloc. It is intended somehow to keep the United States involved in trade and sort of uh, what the the U.S. likes to call setting the rules of the road in Asia or in the Asia-Pacific region or Indo-Pacific region, I should say. But it's still not entirely clear what actually it's going to be. Do you think it'll be the equivalent? So again, like
0: what I mentioned earlier, it's it's this larger strategic shift in order to effectively, I think, try to contain China. Do you think that's effectively what the United States is trying to do here with all of these moves that
1: it's made since Biden came to power? I think, yeah, I mean, there's sort of a, you know, we're, we're reassuring everybody that, um, uh, you know, the United States isn't going anywhere pretty much in any part of the world. Um, yeah, I, why I think would that's we? what, <laughs> I think that's what this is. Um, I, I don't, without, without an actual sort of defined trade component attached to it, it's, it's unclear to me how robust this can actually be. So I, I, I uh, I mentioned the existence of it because of the announcement of it because they made a fairly big deal out of it, but i'm I'm not clear on exactly what they they intend for it to accomplish, other than making this statement that the United States is you know we're here, we're we care. <laughs> we're here. We care. We'd love you. Um, yeah. So, is that all on Biden's trip? Should we move uh, on, Derek? Well, the Quad summit also involved a couple of announcements. A few, one, well, they were a handful. A couple of the the big ones. Uh, they announced uh, a very vague, it seemed to me, plan to invest fifty billion dollars in infrastructure projects in uh, the asia i think they said asia pacific which implies uh you know a lot of pacific islands work you know th- this is this would be very much uh, an effort to counter the belt and road initiative though i don't know that um you know kind of 50 billion dollars without specifying how that's going to be spent or uh what it's going to what it's supposed to do is much of a counter to the BRI um uh, nevertheless that's the that's the statement i think that they're making and they also announced plans to uh create a maritime Regional maritime traffic monitoring service, which uh, would use commercial satellites to track shipping. Uh, you can, you know, envision this being used to um, maybe track ships that are that are violating UN or U.S. sanctions, uh, say on Iran or North Korea. Uh, but it's also meant to be something that smaller countries in the region, you know, countries that are not in the quad, uh, could interact with. It's it's another, it's partly another soft power uh, initiative. It's meant to be a service to some of these uh uh states in the indo-pacific region to to help them uh you know kind of monitor ship traffic and that sort of thing and prevent china from doing
0: it effectively and, because there's right, been all that right. yeah there's been all that talk about china you know going into international organizations and you, it's so funny whenever you read people on this they're like a gas that china is using international organizations to advance its own interests it's yeah, so it's, it's like we know, should do, it, we're that's the only our ones thing. who should be that's yeah. our thing.
1: It's uh, so the ridiculous. last thing to say uh, is North Korea did finally conduct Uh, a weapons test uh, early Wednesday, which was after Biden, just after Biden had left Japan. It's still not entirely clear what they tested. They fired three weapons. Uh, The South Korean military seems to think that one of them was an ICBM, perhaps the uh, somewhat semi-mythical, I guess, Hwasong-17, which they may or may not have tested uh, earlier this year. If they did test an ICBM, they were clearly only testing a component of it whatever this was, the projectile flew fairly high but it didn't go very far, which says, suggests they weren't interested in testing the entire system. They were maybe just interested in testing the booster phase or the launch phase, something like that, unless the test went wrong, which is also a possibility and there was some kind of failure. Uh, it's it's hard to say. And it, it really, this is only, I think, speculation by the South Korean military. There's no confirmation of, of what the North Koreans did. And interestingly, I haven't seen any uh, indication that they talked about on state media that could be uh, because they're preoccupied with COVID right now and and kind of playing low key with some of this uh, other stuff.
0: So let's move to the Middle East and there's been some discussions about island transfers in the Red Sea. So what's been going on Derek and why should we care? Uh,
1: So this is a uh, it's an issue that's been ongoing for five or six years now. Um, there are two islands, Tehran and Senafer, uh, that are located at the mouth of the Gulf of Aqaba as it empties out into the Red Sea. Uh, they are Egyptian property. Now, whether they eternally belong to Egypt uh, or were kind of transferred to Egyptian or placed in Egyptian custody, sort of like you would put your dog in a, in a kennel, I guess, if you're traveling uh, by Saudi Arabia in 1950 is a matter of some dispute between those two countries. Uh, The Egyptians have, long, you know, held that these islands were Egyptian, have been Egyptian from, you know, time immemorial. Uh, The Saudis insist that the islands were theirs, and they transferred uh, Abdulaziz, King Abdulaziz, or Ibn Saud, the the founder of the the Saudi kingdom, transferred them to the Egyptians for protection in 1950, because at the time there were fears uh, that the Israeli military could try to seize those islands. They control, uh, basically, access between the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea because they they create a a couple of very narrow straits that can be uh, kind of uh, closed off or opened up depending on who's in control of those islands. Regardless of the long-standing dispute in 2016, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi announced that he was giving the islands or made moves to give the islands to the Saudis, uh, whether to right a historic wrong or because he was just trying to thank them for all the money they have helpfully dumped into Egypt since he seized power in 2013 uh you know is is up to you to decide uh, but regardless he he went forward with this it created a, a fairly serious at the time political crisis in Egypt. There were protests It went to the courts. Finally, the, uh, the Egyptian sort of Supreme Court or High Court ruled that uh, the transfer was legal, that Sisi was within his rights to do this, or within his power to do this. Uh, and there, that's where things have stood uh, since, you know, 2017, 2018. Uh, the reason that they haven't advanced any further with this transfer uh, is that under the terms of Egypt's 1979 Camp David peace treaty with Israel, Israel has the right to, or has the, the uh, yeah, I guess right, it has the right to have kind of a, a final approval on what happens to, to these islands if they're transferred somewhere else. Um, that agreement also um, obliged Egypt to demilitarize the islands, which they've been uh, ever since that treaty. Uh, The Israelis, who, you know, really are are basically uh, on good terms with the Saudis in general at this point, don't seem to oppose the transfer of ownership, but they are... Uh, they do have some concerns about the monitoring mission. There was a, you know, sort of monitoring component to this demilitarization, so they they want to maintain that international mission uh, to ensure that the islands remain demilitarized. The Saudis do not want to maintain uh, that monitoring mission, so they've been in uh, sort of a dispute o- over the last couple of years. Uh, with the Israelis holding the, the final say over what happens to these islands. Now, uh, what Axios reported earlier this week, uh, you can uh, you know, sort of enter the Biden administration here. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to mediate an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to satisfy everybody's concerns about monitoring and get these islands transferred to the Saudis. Uh, They view this as a way to basically curry favor with Mohammed bin Salman, who's very keen on uh, taking control of the islands and the economic potential that that offers. Uh, And they also view this as potentially a window or an opening uh, to pursue full normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, to use this as a jumping-off point, uh, in line with uh, what the Trump administration did with its Abraham Accords uh, project, which normalized Israeli relations with the UAE, with uh, Bahrain, Morocco. The, The Biden administration sees this as a chance to go beyond the Abraham Accords and get the big fish, which is Saudi Arabia, to normalize relations with Israel, uh, it would view that as a great diplomatic success, which I guess it would be for anybody other than the Palestinians uh, who will get screwed here as they historically get screwed no matter what happens in the region. Uh, and so that's where things stand. The Biden administration is trying to work out kind of behind the scenes uh, an agreement to to make uh, this transfer happen. Do
0: you think this augurs anything big about geopolitics or not really?
1: I I do. I mean, I think you know the the handicap here, or the what's been blocking uh, a normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, is not really um, you know anything structural. It's that. Mohammed bin Salman's dad, who is still technically king uh, of Saudi Arabia, King Salman doesn't, uh, you know, sort of have day to day isn't involved in the day to day running of the kingdom anymore because he's quite elderly and probably not in great health. Uh, But he snaps to anytime somebody mentions the idea of normalization with Israel and says not until there's a, you know, an agreement on a Palestinian state. Um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, by all accounts, wants to ditch the Palestinians and cut a deal with Israel. Uh, he would have liked to have done. And I think, you know, to, to help his buddy, Jared Kushner and, uh, and Donald Trump out, uh, during the, 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 Abraham Accords kind of festival, but that didn't happen. I think he would still be interested in doing a deal now. So yeah, I mean, if you view this as, uh, the starting off point to start negotiating that normalization deal. Uh, I think you're in a sort of holding pattern because of King Salman, but he's, you know, he was just in the hospital for a fairly extended period of time. And um, as I say, he's elderly, he's not in the best of health. So you may be looking toward a, a transition in Saudi Arabia that opens up the the, the door fully for, for a normalization agreement. And that would be a, a pretty big deal. Uh, Yeah, I would be big. It would be bad for the Palestinians, and I'm sure good for rich people in in the kingdom and in Israel. (sighs) Rich
0: people in the kingdom and around the world, one can dream. So why don't we move over to Ukraine, and why don't we talk about the U.S. threat of a Russian default?
1: So the Treasury Department has been, uh, since the start of the war and since the United States and other Western governments froze a large portion of Russia's uh, foreign currency reserves, has been maintaining... Um, an exemption or kind of, a special privilege or special window to allow the Russian finance ministry to make debt service payments in that foreign currency, which, you know, one has to do debt is the debt is denominated in a certain currency. You have to make payments in that currency. Uh, That window expired on Wednesday. I'm not sure why there was a deadline on it. But um, the Biden administration did not renew the window. uh, And so it's kaput now, which means that the Russian foreign ministry is probably uh, at some point going to be forced into default. It's not that they lack the money to make these debt service payments. It's that they're going to try to make the payments in rubles. And, you know, they've, they've talked about offering some kind of unspecified scheme to convert uh, the rubles back into the the original currency of the debt, you know, on a sort of immediate immediately after the payment is made. It's it seems unlikely that all of their uh, foreign creditors are going to be okay with that, and so uh, this is going to force uh, a default at some point. It's hard to say when. Russia has a lot of foreign bonds, and unpacking which ones have to be paid off and which currencies is is uh, somewhat tricky. And I'm definitely not a finance guy. as is anybody who uh, looks at my bank account will know intimately. So it's hard to know exactly when, but the the end game here is probably a Russian uh, default. So what would that mean? That seems like that would be an enormous deal. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna have big repercussions, I think, for the global economy. It will probably you know have ripple effects that I certainly am not qualified to talk about um it will damage the russian economy although the russian economy is doing so well right now in fact the the uh uh, they're taking in so much revenue from uh higher oil prices and higher uh, gas prices that they're worried that the ruble has recovered it's not only recovered it's recovered past where it was before the war started and there's there's worry that the ruble is now too strong so the the russians are dealing with that now but the the effect would probably be um some decline in value of the ruble uh you know obviously russia's gonna um gonna struggle to obtain they were gonna struggle to obtain any any new uh foreign debt anyway um, but this is going to have you know one would think long long term repercussions, uh, for foreign investment for the the Russian economy in general. Um, I I will say uh, inflation seems to be up a bit in Russia. It's up a bit everywhere, but it seems to be up a little bit more in Russia, probably because of sanctions. Uh, the Russian government just announced increases in state pension payouts and in the national minimum wage, uh, to sort of help people keep pace. Uh, with that rising inflation. So it's it's clear that sanctions have had some effect and a default will in, intensify that. It, it has to be said, without an oil embargo, without a uh, a gas embargo, it, it's unlikely that um, this idea that you were going to leverage Russia economically to force it to stand down in Ukraine, uh, which was always a bit of a long shot, as long as the, they're, they're continuing to export uh, energy products, that's that's really not seemingly going to happen.
0: So let's turn to the war, and let's start with the Russian advance on Severodonetsk.
1: Yeah, Severodonetsk is a city in Luhansk Oblast, which is uh, in the Donbass. It's the last major city uh, in Luhansk that's still in Ukrainian control. Uh, The Russians have been focusing on Severodonetsk for some time now. It seems they're making progress uh in fact the ukrainians are i think uh, reuters reported on wednesday they were down to defending like the last main highway into and out of the city which is their supply route uh for the the, the personnel they have stationed in severodonetsk and, and in its uh, environs the russians are able to cut that road and take it they will surround that those military units or uh, they'll be closer at least to surrounding them there are some uh, they're not entirely surrounding the city yet But it's it's they seem to have some momentum. It's going it's slow. It's not uh, certainly not a a lightning speed advance, but they they are steadily uh, advancing here.
0: President Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, has said that in some places, Ukrainian forces are very severely outnumbered and outgunned by the Russians. And he's urging Ukraine's Western allies to supply
1: more weapons. The Ukrainians are. Moving US made howitzers. uh, These are M777s. I don't know (laughs) what that means exactly, but that's the designation. Uh, They've been arriving, they've started to arrive in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have been moving them into the Donbass as fast as they can. Artillery is a big part, has been a big part of this particular phase of the war, and these howitzers are supposed to be fairly effective long range artillery so uh if they get enough of them in place that that could kind of stem the russian advance but i don't um, you know i don't know how fast that's going or uh how many of them they're able to get into the region with you know the russians uh conducting air strikes and missile strikes on trains and on um, you know weapons depots in the west um that may hamper things somewhat
0: and in fact th- it actually does seem to be that Russia is planning to annex Kherson, which correct me if I'm wrong, is is well outside the Donbass.
1: Yeah, so Kherson uh, is just north of Crimea. Um, it's one of the first places that fell uh, to the Russians after the invasion started. Uh, there are indications that that Kherson is preparing for some kind of annexation. Uh, the Russian appointed administration in the the province announced that it's going to adopt the Russian ruble uh, as legal currency that would be, uh, I think, alongside um, the the Ukrainian currency, which is the... I'm sorry I'm no I'm butchering that but i'm I'm doing the best I can here um uh, so they're not replacing that they're not like it's not a, a a shift to the ruble it's just adding the ruble but that's sort of a uh you know step in the, step in, the yeah. in the direction yeah uh, the Russians are also reportedly uh fast tracking Russian citizenship for residents in Kherson uh and also in parts of uh, Zaporizhia uh, Oblast, which is in eastern Ukraine, kind of the next uh, next province over as you kind of move west from the Donbass. Uh, Russia controls the southern portion of that province. Uh, there's an, an indication that they may, be, may fast-track Russian citizenship for people living there as well. Um, this doesn't necessarily indicate that annexation is on the table. Russia has offered... Passports to residents of the Donbass for many years. It offered. It's offered uh, passports to people in you know, Georgia, for example, in South Ossetia and uh, um, Abkhazia prior to the the Russo Georgian War back in uh, 2008. They had. Uh, they did this, uh, and they haven't annexed any of these places um, as yet. Anyway, uh, so but but it it does indicate at the very least that they intend for these parts of Ukraine to remain kind of permanent russian connected. dependencies yeah basically basically dependent states or statelets uh, along the lines of the the two breakaway georgian regions um if not you know to to outright annex them
0: so why don't we end on uh henry kissinger's comments and the uproar that they engendered
1: yeah, so Kissinger, uh, they took Kissinger out of cold storage uh, to <laughs> wheel him to uh, the Davos conference, always the finest people uh, at the World we Economic applied. Forum We applied, we didn't in get Davos. in this year. Yeah. Hopefully hopefully um, we'll be presenting next year. F- fingers crossed. Uh, where he, uh, I guess earlier this week, said something to the effect that... Um, Ukraine needs to be negotiating uh, an end of the war with Russia and that end is going to uh, require them to surrender some territory to Russia to uh, give up some some part of the territory that Russia has already conquered uh, maybe all of it I'm not I'm not entirely clear what he was uh, suggesting uh, this drew a, a backlash. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, you know, also spoke by by uh, you know a Zoom, I think, to the crowd at Davos, and you know, angrily sort of denounced this idea of surrendering territory. Insisted he's going to take all of uh, all the country back, and uh, you know, he sort of has to do that. You don't want your president, I guess, to to be talking about concessions at a time like this. It also raised a lot of, you know, there's a lot of anger among the uh, foreign policy crowd in the U S there was a couple of days there on social media where we had the always productive conversation. uh, If your views align with Henry Kissinger's, then you need to rethink your views versus the, if you're actually a bigger warmonger than Henry Kissinger, you should rethink your views. You know, all this kind of back and forth. Uh, My, my, position on this is uh none of these people have any standing to comment i mean zelensky does uh but none of these people in the u.s have any standing to comment on this the only thing to say about what ukraine or or should do to to end the war and a negotiated peace is that it's not my business it's up to them they can decide that so that's that's my feeling but uh you know i'm i'm uh, not inclined to agree with any of these folks I mean, there is a strong contingent of all the usual suspects, Michael McFall and, uh, Benjamin Witz. Witz? is it Witz? Wittes? W- Wittes? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, all these, 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 like, right? That's you know, the cannon guy. Yeah, the cannon like, guy, yeah. the boom guy. Yeah uh, who, whose commentary verges on, you know, let's fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Uh, and that, that always makes me very uncomfortable at the same time. I, you know, Kissinger has no more standing than any of any of these other people to talk about what, uh, Ukraine should do. So I, uh, my opinion, just leave it alone. Uh,
0: Americans love to play risk with the entire world. Well, again, on that happy note, Derek, thank you so much. Everyone, please enjoy our interview with Stephen Eich about his new and excellent book, The Currency of Politics. See you next week. Bye. Hello Prestige Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison and we are very happy to be joined by Stephen Eich. Stephen is an assistant professor of government at Georgetown University and he is also the author of the new book, very interesting and exciting book that we are going to talk with him about today, titled The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So why don't we just start with the most basic question humanly possible? And you're a political theorist, so you can give the most complicated answer to the most basic question, which is, what (laughs) is money?
2: So money, if you ask economists, is defined by its functionality, whether it serves as a store of value, a medium of exchange, um, and so on. But if you dig a little deeper beyond the economic definition it turns out that political theorists have asked themselves precisely that question and they haven't arrived at a straightforward answer. Instead, um, what I show in the book and what has kind of fascinated me in writing it, it turns out money is really a kind of collective uh, institution of our imagination. It's a way in which societies govern value and are in turn governed by certain conceptions of value. And from that perspective, it's not just simply an economic tool That is meant to fulfill certain functions, uh, better or worse. But it's really a kind of societal institution, very much like law or speech, that governs the way in which we relate to one another and which crucially um, governs the way in which power is exercised within societies.
0: So in the book, you begin with Aristotle. Um, But I was wondering... What, what are the first instances of money? Because I think this is important because I think people on the left in particular have this imagined idea of, you know, pre-monetary societies or pre-currency societies. So what is the first archaeological evidence um, of money that we have or broadly speaking, you know, is it Bronze Age? Is it earlier? What are we talking about? When do, when do we see money first come into circulation as it were?
2: I mean, the first, first thing to observe is on a meta level that that is always the question that's being asked first. Like an origin story of where does money come from? What is the first time money was being used? And in fact, in, in writing about the history of money it's a history of origin stories. Um, more or less convincing attempts to precisely answer that question. And I'm, so it's a good yeah, question. I'm, it's a great less, question, if you
0: will. It's a great it's question, but question, but it's
2: a quest. Yeah. It's a question that, um, you know, has misled many people because it sends you on this search into the deep past in the hope that figuring out the origin of something will tell you something about its nature. Okay? So here's my crack at this. Um, it doesn't begin with Aristotle. In fact, it begins much, much earlier. The invention of money dates back at least as long before Aristotle as Aristotle is separated from us. So you would probably have to go back, um, you know, 2000, 2500 BC at the very least, maybe even, maybe even earlier. And you'll probably um, encounter it in kind of Mesopotamian societies that are developing new techniques of accounting and bookkeeping. That's when you see money appear first as a technique of essentially keeping track of value of who owes what to whom, um, what is the unit of value that's being used to denominate um, certain debts, not least tax debts, but also um, accounting in a kind of more administrative function when it comes to the actual distribution of materials. So that's where you would probably find the origins of money, as far as we can tell. That's, that's interesting for me because it's actually not as a material object that money appears, but as an accounting unit. Right. That's really, I think, what money is. All these other things, which, which we casually usually refer to as money, actually are just tokens, you know, some consisting of metal, some consisting of paper that are kind of symbolized, um, used to symbolize the discharging of certain debts or the, you know, the symbol that holds a certain amount of value. But that's not really the money itself. The money itself is an accounting unit.
0: So it's basically a unit by which to measure debt in a sense. It, 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 to to measure what is owed. And and, and, and in that sense, That's right. and you gesture toward this in the book. It's about the future, right? So could could you maybe talk a little bit about this because I think it's really interesting and not something that people generally address, which is what is, in a sense, this might be not exactly correctly phrased, but what is the theory of time that goes into money? How does money relate uh, to time and futurity or I don't know how to pronounce that. I've never actually said that out loud, et cetera.
2: Yeah, maybe the way into this is to appreciate um, the idea that money is this institution. Nice, appreciate. Good pun. <laughs> to to collect. This is the entire. This is the problem of writing about money that uh, all the people writing about it can't help themselves but resort to these cheap monetary can't
0: funds. Can't help themselves.
2: <laughs> 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 but uh, the, what's helpful here is to to look at the idea that expectations play in conceiving of money, precisely if it's not just a, an object, you know, not just a kind of lump of metal or a piece of paper, but something um, that exists in uh, on a different uh, realm of ideas and has this collective dimension, immediately expectations become part of what money is and crucially expectations of the future, but also certain conceptions of what the past looks like. So in talking about money and in trying to historicize money and trying to understand how certain peoples in the past have used money, In doing that historian's job, it actually becomes really, really important to historicize their respective conceptions of the future, what they thought the future would be like and what the expectations were that then were worked into money. And that's something that's not constant across time. Obviously, that's one of the things that changes enormously. And it's actually quite hard to get hold of. Um, But but that's a, a crucial part of what it means to kind of place different kinds of monies in their historical context.
0: So before we dive into the specific case studies of the book, I was wondering if you had anything to add about this sort of general approach to money. Maybe the connection between money and specie and how that has historically functioned, or we'll probably get into that in the book, but is, is, you know, does money need to be backed by something or I mean, I, and we, we have different historical instantiations where it's not backed by something and where it is backed by something. So, so what do you think the connection between that is? Because particularly in the United States, as you know, um, particularly when you go to the far right, there's all these discussions about like having left the gold standard and why that's a problem and floating currencies. So maybe you could just address that a little bit from the general level and then we'll get into more
2: specifics. Yeah, that's really kind of bugbear of a lot of the contemporary conversation. And what people often are used to is the idea is money backed by something else, which then has supposed to have intrinsic value, right? So money is a stand in for something else. Let's say gold and gold has value. Why? Because we think it has intrinsic value. And what I, what I try to do in the book is actually go back in time and put my finger on the first theorists who and have presented that argument of um, certain forms of metal having intrinsic value. Probably the most influential, which fed into extremely um, influential conceptions of sound money that still hang over that conversation down to this day, is John Locke. Right, the kind of right. which we'll talk about. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about it, but, but that's where a lot of the conception about sound money come from. And the idea that silver, unlike other forms of credit, unlike you know, forms of debt that the state can issue, silver has intrinsic value in look. However, once you dig a little deeper and try to understand what intrinsic value actually means, you actually get back into the same conversation that you were supposed to have left. Namely, it is actually itself defined by an act of fiat, by an act on the part of the sovereign to declare a certain standard of value, the effective standard of value um, for the realm. So for me, this this search for intrinsic value, this search for backing, is a trick. It's a a delusion. It's a a mirage that we precisely have to get out of. Not because money is not backed by anything. It's backed by something extremely important, namely, all the existing credit and debt obligations of a society, including human imagination, but also, you know, uh, most concretely, the force of the state the force of the state right. to potentially exert violence. That's not nothing.
0: And this is why I loved you talking about crisis, right? Because I think this is a really interesting way to connect. Everyone talks about Schmidt these days in terms of the political, but you're essentially saying that he who is sovereign who decides what the currency is, you know? And I, I think that's also really important because one of my big sort of theoretical projects, and, and we should actually maybe talk about we're putting together something on this with someone like Twos, is that we, we have... A, Right now, there's a bifurcation in how we study security and how we study economics. And I think what your book does so well is, is in a theoretical sense, which is really the first step, show how a lot of the fundamental structuring elements of like, the political are actually also the fundamental structuring elements of money. And so if you go back to the political theory of these things, you're actually able to see some overlap. And that's really, really fascinating. So why don't we actually now let's now that we just got sort of the large theoretical questions out of the way, let's go to the actual thing because you you do something very interesting. So that people who might not know a lot of political theory, you know, they'll they'll do a book on virtue, you know, and they'll put a bunch of people in in conversation in different times and places, and they'll say. X talks about virtue in this way, Y talks about it, and sometimes they'll contextualize and sometimes not, but you take a chronological approach. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about why you adopted such a historical approach and then why Aristotle, why do you think Aristotle in particular, because there's like kind of a big leap between Aristotle and Locke in terms of time, but why do you think starting with Aristotle is so critical before we get to the early modern era?
2: Yeah, so the book is structured through a series of monetary crises, which each come with a specific thinker, but they're not picked as kind of random case studies or based on which thinkers I happen to like or dislike. But there, there is an attempt to really kind of do genealogical work to kind of excavate the ground on which we're standing, the kind of tacit conceptions of money that feed into many of our conversations, even though we are entirely unaware of the exact sources and um, where these ideas come from. And so I basically just duck back in time and try to focus on those moments of crises, which seem to me the most productive moments in which new thought about money was generated. And if you do that, what you really quickly realizes that the history of political thought about money is written in this kind of pattern of accumulating layers of crises. And you can see this in the footnotes. You can see that explosion of thinking and writing about money in times of war, in times of monetary crisis, and the kind of relative calm and the relative lack of books about money in periods of comparative stability. And so you can go back and look at these explosive moments which kind of the taken for granted veil was pulled down and people started to ask themselves exactly that question with which we started, wait, what exactly is money? This thing that I use every day and take for granted. And that looks really weird if you stare at a $1 note for slightly too long. And you can go into these moments and then you know look at okay who contributed in the most interesting in the most influential and in the most productive in the most lasting manner to these uh, to these debates um and that's that's how i ended up writing this pattern now i could have chosen some other thinkers i could have um added other chapters but um aristotle uh, partially formed uh, a basis for this, not because, you know, Aristotle is necessary for us to understand financial capitalism of the 21st century or because somehow there is a, a virtue ethical lesson that we should take on board. But instead, Aristotle is simply the battleground on which different conceptions about money are being fought for two millennia, essentially. The entire kind of mix out of which different highly politicized conceptions of money emerge in the early modern period all make reference in one way or another to different parts of Aristotle. That's always the reference that gets pulled in, and that's the textual work that's being done. So for my project, it seemed important to actually trace that all the way back, that although I'm primarily interested in modern money, um, grounding the discussion in some of these reference points that would have been so familiar to many of the theorists that I'm talking about subsequently seemed an important grounding move. Not because it's the origin of money, not because it's the lesson for the future, but it's part of the ground on which we stand.
0: So what is the ground? What, what, is, what, is, what are the stakes that Aristotle essentially sets up that are crucial to understanding how we still think about money today?
2: I mean, the first thing to say is that it's a peculiar kind of ground, not exactly quicksand, but uh, a metaphor that I sometimes use is metaphoric rock, rock that has been transformed by the pressure of subsequent layers of rock. And that poses a couple of, you know, peculiar problems for the historian, for someone who wants to go back. Uh, Distortions, changes in the the conceptions and so on. But if we go back to Aristotle, We first of all realized that he has, as I already mentioned, become the source for two entirely divergent accounts of money. There are parts of Aristotle's work in Book One of the Politics that are very frequently cited by those who tend to hold on to what's usually called a metalist view of money or a more economic account of money, where money emerges as a piece of metal out of long-distance trade. Um, That's one way, for example, in which um, Joseph Schumpeter read, read Aristotle. There is, by contrast, uh, another discussion, a much longer, much more interesting, um, from my perspective, discussion of money in book five of the Nicomachean Ethics, which talks about money not so much as an economic institution, but instead as an institution of you know, any kind of society that is in pursuit of governing itself and trying to figure out what it would mean to actually achieve political justice. Right, the political of money
0: essentially. So, so there, there's exactly, one that focuses exactly. on like literal backing, and there's one that focuses on the, the political community in a sense that is forged at least partially through money.
2: And what's standing in the background here is the fact that currency, in the form of coins issued by political communities, is actually a comparatively recent. Innovation at this point. It's been around for like 200-plus years at the time of Aristotle's writing, so it's a comparatively young institution compared to the institution of money that, as already mentioned, had existed for millennia already by the time Aristotle was writing. Instead, coins issued by the political community seem to be doing some kind of different work that has a different political function.
0: So just one quick question. Um, so Aristotle is also living in a moment of transition, at least in his part of the world, from kind of city-state to, you know, Macedonian empire. So is there a connection then between the the, the thinking about money and sort of the expansionist political program that'll come with Alexander,
2: or is that not really addressed? I think if anything, uh, as so often with political thought, there's a sense of kind of nostalgia, of unfulfilled possibilities. So what you get in Aristotle is a kind of the sketch of the polis in its most idealist form as it probably existed a hundred years or so before Aristotle's own time, right, precisely at the moment in which something ceases to exist, you see Aristotle giving it kind of the fullest theoretical form of what this perfect congruence between a political community and a particular kind of political money would have looked like, despite the fact that well, first of all, the city-states have already been overtaken by um, empire, right? Um, in particular, if you're writing from Athens. And uh, as you already mentioned, even the conception of city-states under uh, an umbrella of empire is beginning to crumble away and being displaced by yeah, It's beginning by, to change right then. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah.
1: So I'm, I'm, I am curious about, to dig in a little bit to how Aristotle talks about coinage, as you say. It was you know, still a relatively recent development. I, I like this chapter a lot because it sort of dragged me back into grad school, where we did a lot of uh, numismatic work. Uh, and and really, this is sort of the obvious link between currency and politics: is the the actual political statements that are that are embossed on these coins, the images, the texts. Uh, the things that the ruling power wants you to know about itself. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you could maybe dig in a little bit to what Aristotle had to say about how the development of coinage and this kind of production uh, of, you know, with every city kind of producing its own currency and making these things kind of overt, how that relates to this much older political institution of money in terms of transactions and credit and the and, uh, debt.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, fir- the first thing to say historically before, before I get um, back into Aristotle, it really has long been a puzzle of why all these um, Greek city-states issued their own currency. Right, like the, the standard account um, told by kind of institutional economists about the invention of coinage is that it's essentially an efficiency gain, right? You kind of stamp certain lumps of metal so you don't have to weigh every single time you engage in a transaction and the state is just there as a kind of guarantor of that uh, efficiency mechanism, of that time-saving mechanism. But if you look at it from that perspective, it becomes really, really puzzling why there would have been 500 plus different currencies just in the Greek world, right? If you're really into efficiency, <laughs> that's not an obvious solution. <laughs> um, so clearly something else is going on. There must be some political link, which if you look at it, you know, screams in your face, um, because it's on, it's on the coins themselves. So that's just a kind of larger historical background. When it comes to Aristotle, we're obviously dealing with um, you know, a difficulty of sources. So we're piecing together an argument from essentially, you know two surviving um, lecture courses, one on politics, one on ethics, as well as, and this is, I think crucial, an account that is usually seen nowadays as written not by Aristotle himself but by a student of Aristotle. So it's called a kind of pseudo-Aristotelian text. But that's the um, Athenian constitutional history, where you would get um from an Aristotelian perspective, maybe not Aristotle himself, but certainly someone quite close to him, studied with him, an account of the kind of political constitutional changes um, Athens um, underwent. And so it's between in connecting the dots between the two that I think we can begin to say um, a few interesting things. So from the ethics, we get a theoretical account about currency, or coinage, as an institution analogous to law. And that's something that's embedded actually in the, in the Greek here. It's something that the city gives itself rather than being kind of externally given to it and something that it can control some kind of, um, you know, force over, um, and can use in order to govern itself well or less well, um, which always entails risks of misgovernment, abuse and corruption, but also a possibility of making use of it. And when you connect that to the constitutional history, you notice that from Aristotle's perspective, crucial moments of democratization, crucial moments in which the kind of the structure of the Athenian political community changed, were associated with changes in the way in which it used money. So, for example, um, two crucial innovations um, were that Athens um, not only, first of all, invited its male citizens to participate in the law courts and the parliament, but that crucially, it started paying them so you would famously get paid a kind of days wage in order to participate in the law court and that uh you know compensation was given to you in the form of coins issued by the political community and usually actually that that service was even referred to by the name of the coin so that you see this close connection developing between certain tokens issued by the state, their symbolic function, also their, their role as a, a symbol of value, and the way in which that was integrated into crucial reforms of the political system.
0: So one thing that uh, I mentioned earlier was the importance of crisis, and, and maybe you could just zero in on it here. What is the crisis that Aristotle perceives himself as facing?
2: Well, I think there's a double crisis. On the one hand, there's the crisis we've already alluded to, that in some way that political form um, is already on its way out, right? So there, there's a sense of grappling with unfulfilled possibilities um, of um, what once was or maybe was, but also it's contradictions. So you, you get you get a grappling with the, the very idea of political justice and political community precisely at the moment in which it seems... Um, you know, become obsolete. There's also a more specific um, crisis that takes us back to the question, what is money? Because by the time Aristotle is writing, there have been various kind of emergency monetary measures, in particular in the context of wars, for example, towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, whereby um, city-states resorted to issuing um coins that either consisted of copper or um, were copper coins plated with silver, but there was a, a pushing and exploration of the link between political trust, metal value, and the purpose of money in the political community. These things are no longer simply taken for granted or naturalized, but they have become, in previous moments of crises and in particular in the context of war, open to questioning. Um, and that's, I think, partially what Aristotle is working through here.
0: Let's dig in on that for a second, War, because I had mentioned earlier the the disconnect in our theoretical thinking right now between war and money, and this is what I I love about your book, and I think why it's going to be a very important book um, going forward, because it does provide a base for this sort of analysis. But could you bring war into the discussion and and just from maybe even take a step back from Aristotle and just talk about the relationship between war and war and currency? Because um, I think this is something that you see throughout history, you know, people worrying about hyperinflation, people worrying about right now we're talking about Russian sanctions and that's ultimately at least partially a question of money. So um, what is the connection that you see? What, what should, you know, listeners who might not be experts in this take away from the relationship between war and money over time.
2: It's a, it's a striking link and one that I actually didn't expect to come up as strongly as it did when I started writing the book, but something that it becomes inescapable when you actually dig in. Like every single moment of monetary crisis I ended up looking at had an element of war in it. And the war was generative in a number of different ways. Um, to begin with, uh, war puts pressure on state finances, right? Wars are extremely expensive, and um, it forces the state to come up with alternative means of financing, um, force the state to either develop its tax system. So many innovations of tax policy are closely linked to these moments of war. Income taxes first come into being in the late 18th century in the context of Britain's war um, against a Napoleonic France. But you also see the state resorting to innovative, say, desperate, say, creative attempts to create revenue to finance its wars. Right? And so money becomes an obvious an obvious uh, subject here. For many um, centuries running up to the modern period, it was in periods of war that European monarchs would essentially devalue their currency and um, essentially finance their wars through a kind of inflation tax. Um, and and were thereby able to kind of find resources that they didn't have the tax resources for to finance.
0: So I'm very curious here about tendencies in war because the the the, the story we tell in political diplomatic history is that wars tend to centralize states and centralize power and, and and particularly in executives. But on the other hand, as you just said, war also, in a sense, frees up money where where money is able to you know embrace its elasticity and and, and one of the inherent. Um, uses of money is that it can be elastic. So do you see any tendencies or any relationship between those things? I mean, I don't think it would be an X curve necessarily, but I was curious what you see about um, those tendencies towards centralization on one hand and towards elasticity on the other.
2: I think what's standing in the background here are questions of the, the international flow of money that comes out so clearly, right? It's it's precisely in response, partially, to these attempts to finance wars through increased centralization or other tools of monetary financing that, um, you know, <laughs> private sources of money develop techniques to escape those attempts, um, either by developing um, new forms of financial instruments, you know, um, commercial paper, uh, promissory notes, and so on. Um, or there is a sense in which, um, you know, the, the idea of metal money becomes all the more appealing, not because you believe actually in kind of intrinsic value or any of that stuff, but because it's a kind of check against the sovereign simply saying, you know, um, a pound is how much I declare a pound to be worth. Um, and so, so you see also an ideological struggle during these periods of a war in which money is reconceived from both sides, um, on the part of the state, And on the part of uh, private money holders who are trying to resist these attempts. And so it's a genuinely open-ended ideological struggle, and you see it ending differently in different moments. But you, you, you can track how kind of infrastructural debates about state capacity and the ability of states to finance wars very quickly leads to kind of deep um, ideational and ideological debates over what is money? What should money be? What kind of monetary system should come out of a specific war? So this is all
0: uh, incredibly fascinating. And I want to get to Locke in the early modern period, which is, you know, the, the era we're kind of living in the shadow of. But before I do, could you maybe talk a little bit about the church, the Catholic church in Christendom and money? Um, because there's this whole, I mean, it's, it's, it's an enormous topic, but particularly in the late medieval era, you have sort of Aristotle really influencing church thinking but then you also have you know people who are critical of aristotle so i was wondering how the church thought of money if you ever came across this subject before we get to the you know the period of of secularization and desacralization with Locke.
2: yeah it's another example of um the kind of history of political thinking about money not being a footnote to Plato, but a footnote to aristotle in this case because aristotle is the kind of ground zero for critiques of interest Right, that same, that same book of the politics as an extremely influential critique of why there's something unnatural from Aristotle's perspective about money creating its own offspring. Um, and that critique, uh, becomes extremely influential and gets revived, um, in the kind of scholastic tradition. Um, and it becomes church doctrine that, um, the charging of interest is essentially an act of theft an act of theft um, from God because God owns time. And what is interest? Friend of the pod. Yeah. What is interest if not the price of time? So in charging interest, what you're essentially doing is you've, you've stolen time from God and you're charging people to use time and that's, that's clearly, that's clearly heresy. You can't, you can't steal time from God. And so it becomes official church doctrine that, um, the charging of interest, um, is just something that uh, one cannot do, which has the effect, um, you know, as, as is well known and as historians of, of early modern and medieval money have charted and credit in particular have charted that, um, you get the provision of credit migrating away to non-Christian communities, in particular Jewish communities in in medieval medieval Europe, who are precisely exempted from this and are similarly also banned from most other professions. So they also kind of pushed into this, well, it's not entirely free choice. Um, but that, that you see this close connection. So
0: this is a very quick question. So have there been over time communities that become particularly associated with money in, in sort of a negative way? Because this has obviously um, been a lot of writing about the Jewish money lender. You know, money is literally in the title um, as, as, as this anti-Semitic trope that is still powerful today. So is that a thing that happens before um, medieval times? I imagine it must. But uh, I was curious if there's anything that you found in your research related to that
2: yeah, partially because um, of money as a tool of holding communities together, you can immediately see how that simultaneously kind of creates anxieties and suspicions about those who seemingly don't seem to be aligned with that political com- community, those who've been kind of intentionally excluded or who somehow stand on the margins. And um, that fuels that a become a large-
0: of this social glue in a sense. Exactly.
2: Who are, who are, who are exercising control over something that is considered to be a crucial bond of citizenship. You know, and you can see, you can see the anxiety that produces obviously in medieval debates about um, Jewish moneylenders and so on. But you can also see it in the ancient context, um, concerning the role of, um, kind of commercial traders who were residents of a particular polis, but didn't have citizenship. And um, the so-called metics, um, right. who are closely associated with money lending, closely associated with commercial activity, but precisely outside of the political community. And that, so that's already an anxiety that you see reflected in ancient, in the ancient literature.
0: Yeah, and and the, and obviously in literary figures like Shylock, you know that is the absolutely the embodiment of that contradiction. Let's get to Locke. Okay, so so there's um the the first chapter is on Aristotle, the second chapter is on Locke. So who was John Locke? Are you one of the people who thinks that he's a liberal or a proto-liberal? Personally, I'm of the liberalism as a post French Revolution thing, but maybe you could just situate Locke because he's he's. So often, one of the, the you know the founding him and Hobbes, you know, are, are the two founding people that political theorists oftentimes go to in the modern American context. So, who was Locke? Why did you decide to focus on him?
2: Yeah, you can't you can't write the history of liberalism without talking about Locke. But I don't think that's because Locke was straightforwardly a liberal, but because the reception of Locke becomes such a crucial kind of formative element of what liberalism will become, precisely after the French Revolution. And you can see which elements of Locke get refashioned as kind of proto liberal um, ideals um, that now finally are ready for realization. One of them, incidentally, is the idea of sound money. Um, I think more, more than people realize, that's really what kind of 19th century liberalism saw um, when, it, when it looked back at Locke. Um, so I'm, I'm less interested in, in, in Locke as a liberal, um, but I am interested in the peculiar way in which he thinks about money, and the even more peculiar legacy of that thinking about money, um, which is just riddled with with paradoxes. Um, but but I'm trying to put Locke in his own historical context before I get into the question of liberalism. I think that that's, a, that's an interesting afterthought concerning um, how Locke relates to our present, but actually as an obstacle for understanding what Locke really is up to himself.
0: That's great. So what is Locke up to? What is the world that he is living in? What is the crisis that he is living through?
2: Yeah, the the historical background here is a a kind of chronic shortage of silver money, essentially, in the second half of the 17th century, and partially as a result of essentially the kind of South American mines um, slowly drying up. There there isn't quite the supply of silver bullion as there still was in the 16th century. And um, as a result, kind of uh, if you look at 17th century accounts of of English life, a kind of physical shortage of these um, of coins um, is just a, a kind of standard complaint. That becomes um, more than a nuisance, and in fact a kind of existential threat. In the years after the Glorious Revolution, um, so Locke has a long-standing interest in money. He's um, writing about it um, already for decades beforehand. But it's really in those years after the Glorious Revolution, after the emergence of this post-revolutionary state, that Locke is kindly disposed to and is concerned to preserve that he thinks the kind of the monetary issue has really become an existential threat.
0: Just briefly for um, listeners who might not be familiar, what is the Glorious Revolution? What are the stakes of it that we need to know to understand Locke's developing theory of money?
2: I mean, it's essentially um, a peculiar kind of English revolution, um, a revolution through conservation or a revolution in the name of conserving, namely conserving the English state from Catholicism. So, um, putting in place, um, a, a new king who comes in from the Netherlands and, um, precisely removes the threat of Catholicism, the threat of having a king who is not just a Catholic, but potentially aligned with Catholic France. And it's a, it's a peculiar revolution because all that, you know, truly revolutionary upheaval happens in the name of restoration. Um and and Locke is um one of those who is in exile in the years uh, before the revolution and who returns with this new Protestant king who then presides over this kind of um restorative, glorious revolution that produces essentially the modern the modern English and then British state.
1: Can you go in a little bit to the background of of what's happening with in terms of the sh- the silver shortage and the currency devaluation coming on the heels of the sixteenth century? Influx of all this new world silver, which leads to what's called uh, the price revolution, or contributes, let's say, to the price revolution. The the connection is not always there. There are people who dispute the connection, but um, you know there was this period in the the 16th century of high inflation across Europe and and sort of you know uh, very available money and and you know that that changes then by the time we get to the uh, the late 17th century.
2: Yeah. A period, by the way, this late 16th century, um, period of inflation that Keynes thought was the kind of cradle of capitalism. He, he thought that's the moment in which really things, things change. Um, but by the, by the 17th century, things are very different. And that's partially driven by a kind of decline in supply of new silver. But it's also, um, reflecting a kind of different global constellation whereby silver is actually actively exported, in particular from South America to Asia. China is at this point beginning to use silver essentially as a new form of commodity money. Um, and the enormous amounts of silver that begin to flow across the Pacific to China. So really, we're talking about a kind of global, global flow of bullion, all with the effect that less and less silver is arriving on British shores, which intensifies this, um, this shortage. That I, that I already referred to, and then the 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 thing to understand about Locke is that yeah he's concerned about the shortage. Um, I mean, coin clipping uh, becomes um, a really widespread phenomenon, which is an act whereby people essentially chip away, clip away a little bit of silver from um, the edge of a coin, um, in the hope of selling that little uh, silver or thereby one on you know the market. Um, go to a goldsmith and and sell um, that silver for its metal value, and at the same time you can continue to pass on the coin at its nominal value, right? And initially, if the gap is small enough between the nominal value and the metal value, things just kind of get passed on and it's fine. By the time Locke begins to really worry about this in the middle of the 1690s, like, we think, you know, coins were on average missing 50% of the silver content. So you had this minuscule coin that still claimed to represent the old nominal value, but actually half of the silver had been kind of clipped away at this point. So there's an epistemological crisis that's, that's facing every single person um,
1: engaging in exchange in, in that uh, in that currency. This is just such a foreign concept, I think, for people now to, to try and understand what it was like to live in a time where the value of the coin was based on the metallic composition of the coin and not on something more uh, esoteric, and, and and so you get these situations where the government, to stretch out, you know, uh, a, a low supply or a you know shortage of, uh, of precious metals, takes precious metal out of the coin and yet insists that you treat this coin as just as valuable as all the previous coins it's been minting. But what did that mean for people? To you know, I mean, obviously. Uh, there's some legal backing here there's some legal demand that in a domestic context you treat these coins as, as equal in value to what you you know were getting before but that doesn't mean that merchants or you know in terms of exporting or you know dealing in an international context that anybody else has to honor that can you kind of you know talk a little bit about what it meant for people to have these devaluations happen and how that affected uh, sort of your day-to-day life
0: Stephen, before you go into that, it might be worthwhile also talking about Westphalia and the so-called Westphalian system, which is happening concurrently.
2: Yeah, I think what the crisis reveals is precisely this kind of slightly ambiguous, if not contradictory source of uh, the value of money during this time period, which is on the one hand, clearly the product of the state both in English common law, as scholars like Christine San have clearly shown, but also with the kind of precisely Westphalian state looming over this, um, that there's clearly a sense of money being tied to the state. And at the same time, the kind of daily transactions, I think, did largely operate on the basis of the idea that the value is somehow matched by the metal value. And it's uh, what happens in the crisis that the two begin to diverge so dramatically that you really have to kind of choose your monetary theory. Do I believe this has value because the state tells me this has value, or do I believe this has value? because of the metal content, right? Like if 50% of the coin is missing, um, every single transaction, every single attempt to pass on the coin to the next person would trigger that kind of debate. Why are you trying to pay me with this coin? It only has half the silver content. You know, well, it's worth the same because the state, you can still pay your taxes with it just the same. So every transaction, economic life, becomes a kind of seminar about monetary theory, <laughs> uh, which is a deeply destabilizing phenomenon. And so I think that's one way to make sense of just why it's so destabilizing, why it's so um, pernicious, not just for the financing of the state, but for really kind of societal life to to go on. Um, it, it disrupts um, both economic transactions, obviously, but it also disrupts um, kind of questions and assumptions about trust and what really kind of holds you together. You know, you're being constantly forced to decide how much do you trust this new state? How likely do you think this state is going to survive the next 12 months? You know, that's a question that will be on your mind with every single transaction.
0: Right, because if you hold on to something and maybe there's a new ruler, maybe you don't have to pay your debts, you know, or something Precisely. along those lines. So, and this so is a period, this is
2: easy to forget. We now look back at the Glorious Revolution and everything just like fell into place and, you know, then the financial revolution came on top of that and it's just Britain's empire is growing. The, the 10 years in particular after the Glorious Revolution are very fragile. I mean, Britain is fighting essentially a global war that stretches from the Hudson Bay to Madras. Um, it's being challenged externally um, by, the, by the French. It's also suffering periodic kind of, you know, in domestic terrorism uh, plots whereby kind of Catholic holdouts are plotting to assassinate the king. So this is, this is a period in which really you don't want to take for granted that this regime will be around for another two three years. So
0: let's go then to Locke. So what is Locke's problem and what is his solution? Well, you kind of described the problem. So so how does Locke himself approach this and why is it so important to understand in terms of understanding money qua money?
2: Yeah. So the, the solution is in fact a kind of contentious one, but the problem is one that everyone agrees on is a problem. So that's not peculiar to Locke. Um, once 50% of the coins are missing, everyone in the realm agrees that this has become an existential threat. The question is: how do how do we respond to this? And there's a flurry of kind of parliamentary inquiries, parliament commissions, um, experts. To, to look at this. Locke is one of them. Christopher Wren is another. Isaac Newton is another expert. So really they get their kind of the, the biggest brains in the realm together to figure out what's going on. They also task the, the treasury with coming up with a potential plan
0: and the treasury is just response. one thing i want to highlight here what's also critical is this is like you get proto expertise in related relation to economic knowledge so i think those are things that we don't want to you know in order to understand this highly complex system you have the development of a new social category someone called an expert which is different from a priest or a, a, even as someone who, in the scholastic tradition it's something fundamentally different related to politics sorry
2: and that comes. That I think plays an enormous role um, when we try to understand Locke's influence. Subsequently, that he becomes this kind of expert sage, not just simply someone with knowledge, not just simply someone in power, but holding this kind of unique position of an expert um, with kind of seemingly kind of divine powers of um, of knowledge. Very, very different from what what came beforehand. I agree. Um, but so the the Treasury report is really what kind of. Sets off lock. The Treasury Report essentially advocates, based on really solid historical scholarship, what would have been the standard response. Um, So the, the Treasury Report goes through the history of English money and, first of all, establishes that money has value due to the word of the sovereign. Right? And it actually cite, goes back to Aristotle in, in that sense, um, and it cites legal precedent for this. Um, there's, there's, it's a very solid kind of common law position to take. It also does um, good historical work in showing how in previous um, kind of analogous moments, what the Treasury had done was essentially collect all the existing coins that were largely clipped and look at what is the market value of silver and recoin the silver coins at a rate that is more in line. With what we would expect um, them to be worth um, according to the market, okay. which has the advantage that it increases the number of coins in circulation, right? So it kind of decreases the shortage. It reduces the incentives for clipping and aligns British money essentially more with the kind of market price for silver. Locke look, looks at this and is outraged. And so he, he thinks of this proposal as essentially a legalization of clipping. He says there's a little difference to this proposal c- compared to the kind of uh, clandestine clipping that is happening in private, which we all denounce collectively. The state engaging in this kind of recoinage um, as devaluation would essentially uh, become a clipper uh, in its own right, and something something is just wrong about that. You know, that's um, that's a violation of the kind of faith and trust placed in the sovereign. It's a a breaking of a promise, an oath that that state made when it guaranteed the value of a certain coin. And it throws into doubt, like all the kind of societal bonds of trust that connect us to one another, but crucially also that connect us to the government. And if you're concerned about the fragility of this post-revolutionary state, that's, that's an argument Locke takes deeply serious. Um, The kind of collapse of trust in this new government um, is really what um, what hangs over it, which is very different from arguments about simply intrinsic value or economic arguments. In fact, most economists now think that the results uh, of this Um, eventual recoinage that followed Locke's advice was disastrous economically because it reduced the amount of silver coins in circulation even further. But Locke is not at all perturbed by this. Um, He's more interested in the political um, dimension of this reform than simply the kind of monetary economics, as we would call it.
0: So maybe you could just describe what is that recoinage in brief, um, and then what is the legacy of Locke and, and place him within your larger story?
2: So Locke throws his weight um, into this debate uh, at a fairly late uh, point in the in the winter of 1695, and partially through his um, network, um, partially through his reputation, um, he kind of, almost to his own surprise, manages to turn the debate around. Um, So the Treasury view, which looked like it was about to um, be turned into policy, is uh, increasingly on the back foot. Influential parliamentarians um, are coming around to Locke's view, and in the end, to everyone's surprise. Locke's proposal wins out. Locke's proposal is crucially different from the Treasury one because it also um, calls for a recoinage, the collection of all the existing circulating coins, their recoinage, but not at a new rate to be set with an eye towards the market price, with an eye towards how many coins we actually need in circulation, but in a way that fully restores the previous Elizabethan standard of value. So you collect all the clipped coins in, in order to remint them at the old rate, which obviously, given the amount of silver that at that point had been clipped off, sold abroad, and so on, is a lot less. But it has the benefit, from Locke's perspective, that it restores faith in the original promise of the state.
0: So it's about it's about political stability fundamentally. M- money is 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 most important for Locke as a tool of political stability and, and in a sense social imagination and um, belief in the state before the state. Interestingly enough, has the v- Bavarian monopoly of violence that will later come to define what a state is. So it's it's interesting in this transitional period how money plays into that larger rise of the state as a political form that comes to dominate Absolutely. the world. Absolutely,
2: it's all about trust. What's so interesting about it at the same time is. Uh, very different, I think, from the view um, of Locke, um, of subsequent generation, that Locke actually shares many of the old Aristotelian premises, namely that money is something that has conventional origins rather than origins in nature, that money is a product of our imagination rather than um, of natural intrinsic value, right? He agrees with all these things, but it's precisely as a result that money is extremely fragile and fickle, that the state depends on it, but that it also is a kind of fiction that needs to be stabilized, that needs to be tied to previous promises, to the actual measurable silver content, precisely because it otherwise can't hold up the state.
0: So the title of your chapter includes the phrase or the word rather depoliticization or the depoliticization of money. Could you maybe explain what precisely um, that means and that this might actually be a good place to end? And and every every listener, will, we're going to have Stephen on again to talk about some of the, the later chapters of his book as well, which are incredibly interesting. But so maybe just explain what do you mean by depoliticization of money? And how does this relate to your larger argument about crisis and whatnot?
2: Yeah, so there, there are two elements to this. The first one is, um, that others have noted the kind of depoliticizing effect of the language of sound money, right? The way in which it kind of removes it from political control, um, and depoliticizes it as a result. But I think what's crucial to appreciate here is the way in which, for Locke, depoliticization is itself a political strategy, right? As we've just discussed, he's primarily concerned with political stability, political trust. The monetary reform only comes in, in the service, Of this larger political move. It also entails not so much what we would call a removal of money from politics. In fact, he ties it to the old Elizabethan rate, precisely to the state's fiat. That's what should be restored, not the market price. He's not interested in the market price of silver. Um, And at the same time, it does begin to constrain the kind of discretionary ability of the state to meddle in monetary affairs quite precisely forestalls the previous default position of the treasury, which was to devalue the currency.
0: So that's really interesting, because you have on one hand the stabilization of the state, but on the other hand, you have um, a, a very proto-carving out of economics as an almost unpolitical sphere that will, of course, reach its apotheosis in like eu central banking or american central banking where these are effectively decisions that are confined to the experts and removed from democratic political struggle which is something that you emphasize in your book and the importance of re-democratizing discussions about money and politics about money which we'll talk about next time so stephen Eich, thank you so much assistant professor at georgetown university author of the very important new book the currency of politics thank you so much for joining and we look forward to having you back soon
2: Thank you so much.